across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The summer is officially over, ladies and gentlemen. The autumn equinox has come and gone and there are cold northerly winds sweeping through the nation. And as if to hammer home the change of season, the Prime Minister yesterday plunged a dagger into the heart of the economy as he announced a series of measures ranging from killing off late night eating and drinking to bringing the army out onto the streets to ensure everyone is wearing a mask. If you never thought it would come to this, and I must admit, I was one of those people, then you should have seen it coming. The government is now more scared to admit that the virus is beating all their lockdown measures no matter what they do than to accept that the economy could be wrecked forever. Even as Boris Johnson was announcing the 10pm curfew on the hospitality business yesterday in the House of Commons, he hinted that it might not even work. Meanwhile, MPs continue to agitate for proper debate and discussion in Parliament about any new restrictions and impositions on our nation's liberty. We will speak to Tory MP Steve Bryan this morning. 0344-499-1000 is the number. Business leaders are warning of economic collapse and mass unemployment if the furlough system is universally ended. Cities remain deserted and are unlikely uh, to become any busier now that everyone's being urged to work from home once more. But the statistics tell a different story. Under 55s are more likely to die in an accident on the roads than from COVID-19. And in August, the virus did not even feature as one of the top 10 causes of death in England and Wales. So I'm afraid you've got to ask the question, haven't you? Just what exactly is going on? 0344 499 1000. And if you believe that 77% of the people of this country are behind this lockdown and these measures, I think you must be flying around in cloud cuckoo land. I don't know anyone that thinks this is a good idea. Historian and archaeologist Neil Oliver joins us later on with his take on the new lockdown measures in Scotland and the new breed of Covid fanatic, which seems to be growing far and wide. And we'll be asking former Brexit Party MEP Alex Phillips whether we really need a hate crime of misogyny to be brought into law. Punishable, by the way, with up to seven years in jail. We certainly live in strange times, don't we? You get fined 10,000 quid for coming out of your house... And you get seven years in jail for being horrible to a woman. I'm in a lot of trouble. We've got Prime Minister's questions coming up as well in the company of political correspondent Charlotte Ivers. And we want to hear from you, of course, as well, because you are the voices of common sense. You are the people of reason uh, that make us what we are here at Talk Radio. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, several MPs uh, have made noises about the fact that the government seems to be riding roughshod over the democracy of this country, the democracy uh, of the mother of all parliaments, because after all, when uh, David Davis managed to get the government to put a six-monthly kind of stipend onto uh, all the rights and regulations that they wanted to bring in, uh, we were supposed to then debate after six months whether or not we needed to extend them for another six months. It now seems as though Boris Johnson has already extended all of these new lockdown measures for another six months. So let's talk to Steve Bryan, MP, of course, for Winchester, uh, one of those who is uh, slightly concerned that we are not talking enough before we are doing various things which are very, very um, anti-freedom, you might say. Steve, very good morning to you. Mike, that, that introduction was exhausting. <laughs> well, I'm true, exhausted though. just listening to you. Yes, but it's true, isn't it? Every single word of it. <laughs> well, as a constituent replied to me this morning, uh, when I replied and said, thank you for your opinions on this subject, they replied and said, Mr. Brian, these are not my opinions. These are the facts. Yes. So everybody has their own facts, right? I mean, yes, I am concerned. I mean, look, I, I want to be very clear. I'm a former public health minister. I, I do not want Parliament to get in the way of ministers being able to be nimble and being able to make quick decisions where they need to. So, yes. for instance, on, on a local lockdown. I have done the job on a very, very different scale and in different times. I had to move fast sometimes when we had a, an outbreak of yellow fever, for instance, in, a, in an area we had to confine people to quarters. Yeah. That never got any coverage. No one cared. It was small fry. I don't want us to get in the way. But but we, we do live in a parliamentary democracy. And um, 
And this is a much bigger issue than just COVID, actually. Mm. Parliament is a shadow of itself because of social distancing in the chamber, because Westminster Hall, which is where we have spillover debates, is not happening. There is a huge level of scrutiny, spontaneity and debate that is not happening in Parliament right now because everything is scheduled. There are call lists so that ministers know exactly who's going to ask a question and when. And as long as their, um, their staff are doing their job, they even know what. So what it means is that ministers are not as sharp as they could be. And I don't think that's for good government. So I don't want to see us get in the way. I don't want to see, you know, ministers don't need to have us here on a Friday night at 10 p.m. if they need to move quickly in Bolton. But we do need to scrutinize more and ask questions. And I'll tell you why I say that, because so the, the scientists, you know, so Grimm and Grimmer frightened the life out of everybody on Monday with their press conference in number 10. The journalists that were there were not even allowed to ask I questions. Know. And that's where it we gets ridiculous. Have, uh, yeah, and a lot of the data sets that sit behind the slides that they published they they we don't produce they they don't produce the workings out as we used to call it a school behind that we then we then have their assumptions and their interpretations of that data it, it, it that turn out in their slides which is where you get the 49,000 figure from it may be true right but my job as a, as a member of parliament is to scrutinize data and to stress test that's what i said in the house yesterday to the prime minister yeah i think in all honesty steve you know i agree with you i don't expect that uh, ordinary backbenchers who are not in government currently should be able to prevent the, the business of government. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that there are certain things being done without really any conversation whatsoever. For example, we're told by the Prime Minister that the army is going to be on the streets uh, to backfill uh, any sort of shortfall that the police may have. Now, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean we're going to have armed men walking through streets like Belfast in the 60s? I, I don't know what it means. Well, I think I we should know, that, don't you? Um... Exactly my point. Um, and I hear that the, 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 the Labour Party are raising that today, and I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up at PMQs today. The, the point Mike, that I made in the House yesterday to the Prime Minister in, in his statement, and, and just for the record, for your listeners' knowledge, the reason I was able to make that question is because I got lucky in the ballot and mm. I was number 10 on the list. If I hadn't got lucky, I wouldn't have been able to ask anything. Was that... I don't want us to go back into a national lockdown because, as I put it, I think national lockdown is a one-trick pony. Mm. You do it, and then guess what? You have to unlock. Yeah. And that's what we did earlier this year. If we do it again, sooner or later, probably later, we will then have the same unlock debate. Exactly. And, and then what will happen is the RA will rise again, infection rates will rise again, and we'll be back in the same place. So the only way... To foolproof deal with this is to keep the entire country in lockdown until there's a vaccine. And nobody, but nobody, thinks that that is a sensible no. thing. So the point I made to him is that we have to have ongoing, underlined, ongoing consent of the British people to do that. And the only way I think you can do that is through Parliament. You know, find me a better way of, of running a democracy and I'm all ears. Yeah. But that's how it works in our system. Exactly. And also, you know, a bit of an explanation for some of the activity which the government wishes to get involved in. You know, I think they ought to say why they are following particular lines of data and not others. Why, for example, they're listening to particular scientists who you just referred to as grim and grimmer, but not listening to other very eminent scientists who have written a letter, including Carl Hennigan, Professor Carol Sikora, uh, Professor Gupta, you know, three very eminent and well-respected scientists who have completely the opposite view of what the government scientists have. They're not being paid any attention to. I'd like to know well, why. They, they do have an opposite view, but I mean, look, you know, it's a bit like lawyers, isn't it? You know, if, you, if people well, think... Well, not really, no. Yes, it is. What my point is, is that if you put five lawyers in a room, you get six opinions. People think that... And a very large a bill at the end of it. Yeah, people think that Sage is a small group of men. Actually, Sage can be as up, up, up with a 25 people having a, having a discussion. That is fine. It's fine that they have a, that they have a discussion. It's fine that they bring forward uh, recommendations. But ultimately, it is for the politicians to make those decisions. And just going back to my point about, you know, you either lock down indefinitely until you have a vaccine in place. And if you can't do that, and clearly you can't do that, and we'll come on to some of the other reasons why, but I know Carl Sakura well from being the cancer minister, you can't do that. Then you are you're basically stuck with the toolbox that the Prime Minister have, which is trying to, and every other leader in the world is doing this, trying to get this balance between how much you restrict people's actions in order to prevent what the virus loves, which is transmission, versus keeping the economy moving, keeping people yeah, safe. Keeping but it's people not just school. that, Steve. 
It's not just that, because one of the other things that these other alternative scientists talk about a lot is the general health of the nation, not just in terms of COVID, but in terms of everything else, not least some of the procedures which are not being done because the NHS is not able to do them at the moment, but equally, and more importantly, probably, the mental health of the nation. I've been talking to loads of people since Boris got up yesterday in the House of Commons, and every single one of them is a successful man or woman, businessman or woman, wealthy man or woman, and they're all getting very, very depressed about what is going on in this country. And I can hear it in their voices. You know, they are absolutely beside themselves, bereft. They're going to have to lay people off. They're going to have to make people redundant. Their businesses might be going under, even though just a year ago they were very successful. Now, that is a recipe for massive disaster. It is also a recipe for losing that consent that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. I mentioned the house yesterday. Just, just coming back to, to the other conditions. So I think that there is every chance that we will see more people die of, of other conditions. Right. So, so if, you, if you think that a third of cancers are currently detected in the emergency room, which is a horrible thing, mm. but it, it happens every single day, yeah. then how many people have not attended the emergency room with some other condition? It could, could, could be abdominal bloating, for instance, which could quite... Could, could well be a cancer how many people have not therefore presented and then they present at stage three or four which of course is then often too late as yeah. far as the cancer concerned so you could make a case and Carl Sikora I've done done events with him during lockdown actually with Macmillan around the the untold the, the unseen impact of COVID on cancer for instance mm. you could well make a case that more people will eventually die of cancer than will die of this virus but let's not let's not kid ourselves you know the, the prime minister has a devilish job and we have lost over 40,000 of our fellow citizens to this virus. Well, so, we, we've lost 40,000 any... citizens according to the statistics that we currently have but we're not actually sure if they all died of the virus. We don't know that. Well we, we, we had an issue early on where PHE who I have many many good things to say about PHE actually, but I but but then we probably haven't got time for that now. But but the, the had an issue where their data was basically saying you know if you tested positive in February and been run over by a car in May you were co- you were tested you were counted. Yeah, in but the how many there. of those? I mean, how have, many of those are there? They have now corrected that data set. So when you see it reported on the news now, it says the number of deaths within within uh, a month of. A positive COVID test. Now, yeah, sure, you could have had a positive COVID test, got over it, and then been run over by a car. But, you know, data has always got a lag. And I would say to anybody who wants to beat this government round the head with the data and the death figure is... In, an, in two or three years' time, look back, look back at the death figure and then look back at the excess death figure and see where this country actually... actually yes, but the difficulty is, I... Steve, that we are having uh, to make decisions or this government is having to make decisions based on data, which could be wrong. For example, let me give you some numbers. 29,705 patients who died in English hospitals. Of that number... 28,309 had a pre-existing illness, right? So that would tell you that if you haven't got a pre-existing illness, then probably um, you're not in a great deal of danger. Certainly 45% of COVID death certificates noted heart disease as a condition. One in five noted diabetes or high blood pressure. Now, I know there's lots of people with those conditions, but, you know, we are shutting... That would have killed them. No, it doesn't. But the point is, is that, you know, it doesn't mean that COVID killed them either. And so since we didn't examine every dead body to find out whether it was, in fact, infected with coronavirus, you know, many of these numbers are being used to take a position which has already been agreed. And so that's where the data is being dragged towards rather than the other way around. Yeah, and I and I agree, and I think that's my point about you know you've got to look, you've got to take the long view yeah. of, of of deaths and how they compare with excess deaths. Just 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 on your point about policy making and you know having to make policy uh, with with data. See, so when I was in government, you know, we we would make new policy on something. You know, it would take sometimes it could take take up to a year. Mm-hmm. Go through a long process. There would be consultation across government. There'll be consultation of the data. There'll be scrutiny of it, stress testing of it. You know, that's that's how policy making should happen in a pandemic. That is not possible. And and really what you're seeing is every government around the world struggling to make policy in a speedy uh, in a speedy vacuum. And that does not always lead to good policy making. No, it doesn't. It does. But that doesn't mean doesn't we should always. all sit around and just uh, do nothing and say nothing and just go, you guys just carry on and do whatever you like. And if you want to send no, the army into have... if you want to send the army into my house to drag me out and lock me up because I said something wrong or because I did something wrong, because this didn't start out like this. This is now where we are. No. 
and that's why that's why I talk about the the ongoing consent, and that's why so many of us are so anxious about the the scrutiny of Parliament because that's how our system works, mm. and that's what MPs are are paid to do. And you know we're we're all doing it in our in our in our other ways. Um, you know I make all sorts of private representations, and I do what I can in the chamber, but um, but I don't think there's enough on-the-record scrutiny right now, which is important because, you know, that's what the public then get to see. Sure. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of work going on here, too. There's a lot of work going on here, a lot of lot of lobby going on, um, working with Graham Brady, Steve Baker, colleagues like that, yeah. around the way that Parliament scrutinises decisions. Because ultimately, I think it's in ministers' interests. I think it's in the Prime Minister's interest that he has that he has Parliament fully briefed and fully behind him, not just you know the front bench of the of the Labour Party and his own government making decisions and uh, and agreeing right. with each other. So, so where are you guys at the moment? If you're agitating for some kind of debate, and what what are you asking for, and what are your what, are, what response are you getting? Well, the Prime Minister said yesterday uh, that there would be debates in government time on these measures. We have a load of statutory instruments, which they're called, which are secondary legislation, um, that, are, that are being approved by the House today around um, closing businesses in specific localities, around face coverings of specific localities. But they're all happening without debate. Um, and what I want to see is those MPs for those areas much more involved in those debate, and it's that that we're agitating for. Mm, OK, and so when are we hopeful that we might uh, see or hear some kind of debate about it? Um, pass. Um, I, I, I'm not the business managers, um, but I, 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 we, can, we can only keep asking and keep agitating for it. And, uh, you know, if I was able to stand up at PMQs today, and I've not been fortunate through the lottery of life to be on the list, I can't. Well, you but might I not get two in a so. week, I suppose. Uh, well, that is true. That is true. But yeah. it's supposed to be a lottery, so maybe I could. Yeah, you never know. I mean, it's, it's very possible. But there's a lot of people talking about the furlough scheme now as well. Um, just yes. finally, Steve, because I know you've probably got other things to do. But, um, you know, the furlough scheme is due to come to an end. Somebody said to yeah. me yesterday, is this the government trying to save money and be a little bit clever? Because without actually no. locking everything down, they don't have any um, um, sort of responsibility to pay furlough money. And they don't have any responsibility uh, to pay compensation to, to, to individual businesses. So, so this is a sort of lockdown in all but name, really. No, I, I think that I think that's harsh and unfair, and I can I'm sure our opponents would. Well, say if that, you think that's harsh think that. and unfair, you should try running a restaurant where you're now going to lose up to twenty percent of your customers, thanks to the government, with no compensation whatsoever. Yeah, but I, I, I don't think it's fair to say that the government are not going to the lockdown route because that saves them money on furlough. I mean, uh, they, for the record, yesterday in the House, across the House, there was uh, people asking the government about what comes next in terms of furlough. Um, I, don't expect, I don't think they will just U-turn and extend the furlough scheme, but I think there will be a reinvention of it. Possibly you hear a lot of talk today about the German model, don't you? Yeah. Um, sorry, that's just my, ne- my next Zoom meeting is starting. Uh, and I think that I think the government... Are going to have to be creative about that because if you can't let people trade their way out of the situation that they're in then ultimately you either throw them to the wall or you help them and yeah. so far the government have helped greatly and i think it would yeah be but that's all coming to an end is my shame. point and, and what they said yeah. yesterday does not mean that they will be compensating anybody as a result not, not yet. Uh, but if you remember the way that it worked in the spring is that, you know, the announcement was made and then the financial package followed. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure. I, but, I am that's, sure I mean, but, but equally, that's taxpayers' money they're looking at using. So don't you think the taxpayers deserve some kind of say as to how it works? Well, that should be scrutinised by the taxpayers' representatives, otherwise known as Parliament as well. And, yeah, yeah you know, constituents are constantly saying to me, uh, and I see, I see pe- people in the media all the time saying, oh, you know, the government should do this, the government should spend this, we should bail out the airline industry. And I, and I do try and remind people that, actually, the government doesn't have any money. Mm. The only money we have is your money, yeah. and ultimately it has to be paid back. Now, you can call me a Tory for saying that, or you could just call well, it... Well, you are a Tory, to be fair. That is true. I mean, that's not an insult, by the way. No, <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know after years of conditioning from the left, you think it's a bad word. It's actually not a bad word. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's a word with lots of historical connections. Exactly. But, Steve, um, listen, yeah, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Steve Bryan, Conservative MP for Winchester, uh, wants to have more uh, transparency, if you like, from the government, as do we. Uh, wants to have more debate from the government, as do we. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, uh, to former Brexit Party MEP, a uh, good friend of Talk Radio as well, of course, Alex Phillips. Alex, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I'm not sure where, whereabouts you are at the moment, but uh, if you are in London, you'll know that uh, basically nobody's now coming back uh, to the city. Uh, nobody's supposed to go back to work anymore. Uh, you're all supposed to be looking out for uh, you know the next army patrol to make sure you're wearing your mask. <laughs> Is she frozen? Yeah, no, do you know, I mean, I, I did freeze for a while. Uh, no, I've frozen in time in Gloucester at the moment, which is lovely. So I've got access to beautiful countryside. I'm going to go and um, yomp around the Cotswolds today. Very nice, too. Well, let's talk about uh, misogyny, uh, because this morning I'm reading a story in which the legal advisors of this government seem to be about as useless as the scientific advisors, uh, because they want to put people in prison for seven years uh, for misogynistic hate crime. Now, first of all, I'm not even sure what a misogynistic hate crime is. I know there are loads of horrible people on social media who say horrible things to lots of people, including women. Um, but what that doesn't mean is that you need a specific hate crime for women, because if you threaten a woman and threaten to do terrible things to her, there is already a law against that. Um, do you know what? I'm going to disagree with you on this one, Mike, and I'll explain why. I think it's very easy when uh, actions like this take place, and I think it's a great campaign by Stella Creasy to actually make this work. It's very easy for it to be conflated with virtue signaling, with men wearing T-shirts saying I'm a feminist, with all women shortlists which deny meritocracy. Actually, I'm amazed that we haven't got documented in law or, or via a collection of data from police services across the UK crimes perpetrated against women. And the very same people who had turned around and say, what are we doing about grooming gangs? What are we doing about domestic violence? Should actually step up and say, this is a good thing. We actually need to look into this. Like I said, I think it's incredulous that this hasn't happened before. And I think what's quite interesting is we've seen hate crimes built around other communities, let's say. And I think there's going to be an interesting intersection when you see how, for instance, there's probably likely to be a higher incidence of misogyny that's been imported from other cultures. I think that there's a great examples of misogyny coming out of transgender communities against women. So I actually think this is long overdue. And what we mustn't do is look at a very real and serious effort to track, to monitor, and to structurally see how we can improve circumstances and outcomes for women with the most serious forms of crimes perpetrated against them, sexual assault, violence. This isn't wolf whistling. This isn't all women's shortlist. This is actual crime. And yes, they may be crimes in law, but actually categorising them as crimes that have taken place specifically because of the gender of that person will help us, I believe, as a nation, be able to see how we can tackle the root causes of those problems because it does exist in 21st century Britain. Yeah, well, I'm not talking about wolf whistling either, which, which I presume uh, nobody in their right mind would ever continue to do because it's not, you know, 1973. But the bottom line for me is that all of those things you mentioned are already crimes, right? Grooming gangs have already been prosecuted, have already been locked up. It might have taken a long time for it to happen, but they were recorded as crimes because they were against the law in the same way that threatening somebody uh, with rape on, on Twitter is against the law. You can't do it. Therefore, why do you need to specify that a particular part of the society in which we live uh, is different from another part? You know, why should a woman, for example, get special treatment under the law when there's already a law that covers what's going on? It's not special treatment. And actually, the debate here is talking about whether Ms. Andrew comes into it as well, which I believe is going to be the case. But I think by categorising certain crimes, which very clearly are targeted against particular gender, and in this instance, we're discussing women, I think that's actually necessary to be able to realise the extent of the problem, realise where the problem's coming from, and then be able to target resources to tackle those problems. I actually think in the 21st century, it's a complete abrogation of duty that we haven't done something like this yet, because there are women all over the country vulnerable to sexual abuse, to uh, to, to enslavement, to domestic abuse, yeah, but, yeah, and but hang to harassment on, hang on, but, on but, an extreme but, but, level. Yeah, but, but you're not you're not going to make that uh, likelihood of abuse any smaller by creating a law against it because there's already a law against it you know if a man is going to sexually assault a woman yeah, he already he already faces the full force of the law so he's already disregarded that and decided to risk doing it because he wants true. to do it true and and those crimes remain crimes under law as it already stands what this is doing is actually it's about categorization and it's about looking how those crimes accumulate and how for instance they do affect certain people and how the, the we 
can then best protect and manage those circumstances. Like I said, if we suddenly get a picture that there's uh, crimes leveled against women from certain other elements of the community or in certain geographical locations or whatever it may be, and we actually get a national picture of the landscape of crimes against women, we can actually do something about this. And look, I, well, like I'm what? not a Me Too movement person. Well, well, you like know what, that, though? Mike. No, I know you know you're not. That, I, 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 I but, certainly, but I certainly somebody, would never accuse you of that. But as, look, as somebody myself who has been a victim of one of the most serious forms of crime against women, um, I actually take this very... No, listen, and I and I, I appreciate really I appreciate done, what you're it's saying. It's really difficult for women I'm, to get on top of this and to find support. There are services in the country that don't allow women to go and get rape counselling, for example, if they're over 35. We've got no clear picture of where clusters of rapes are necessary. Yeah, but none of that, Alex, is the fault of law. None of that is the fault of the current state of affairs that we find ourselves in. And by adding more layers of law, I don't think that improves anything. I think all it does is it confuses and, and, and sort of muddies the waters, if you like, because in the end, you won't know where misogyny begins. And that's my problem with it. You will not be able to identify exactly what a misogynistic crime is. And I don't think that you even now would be able to define it. Uh, well, no, I think it's quite, I, I, I actually think you've, it's very difficult to define something technically by law because I'm not a lawyer, but I think it's very obvious that someone who's been the victim of rape or someone who has been handed out of office based on accusations of gender traits or characteristics, somebody who has essentially been enslaved in their own household by a husband or a partner, I think that's very clear that that is an action against someone based upon their gender it may not be maybe hate crime isn't the way to frame that but we do have increasing incidents with the pornification of society of abuse and discrimination against women i actually think that's on the up uh, like i said we've got many incidences of imported misogyny from uh, other cultures who don't necessarily follow our sort of 21st century british mindset and there's a great deal of men out there who are great and wonderful people and would probably feel quite insulted by the idea that women are demanding say extra protections in law but the, the re reality is and the empirical statistical picture is women are usually uh, the victims of rape they are usually more often than men the victims of domestic abuse and i think that it's very important we tackle that and the only way yeah, we can tackle that is by ring fencing those crimes together no. and looking at a picture no. and being able to analyze that and it's not the true reports. No, because they're already protected by law. You are all, you already have a law. You don't need to make another law because you've just said something very interesting there. Somebody being hounded out of their job as a result of their gender. Now, I don't know what you meant by that, but I didn't realise it was a crime uh, for somebody to lose their job. Um, well, it's not a crime for someone to lose their job, but if someone's being harassed and hounded out of position in a workplace based upon false accusations, based upon gender stereotypes, based upon sexual Well, that's a massive, that's then... a massive, massive problem area, isn't it? And you'll end up trying to criminalise people because of something that happened in an office. I mean, that's crazy. Not necessarily. Just because it happens in an office, it doesn't make it less of a crime. And actually, I it think doesn't make it a know, crime they're... either, though. That's what I'm saying. This this will make things much more complicated, much more difficult, and much more, um, uh, you know, um, ridiculously kind of mired in law. And you'll get lawyers making loads of money, and nobody will, and the whole system will will, will seize up. I don't see it as that. And I think if you look into what Stella Creasy is trying to do and what, what the uh, objective is behind this effort, I think it comes from a place of need. It comes from a place of need, needing to be able to recognise in the 21st century that women are still victims and still vulnerable at the hands of men in a great many areas. And that's never actually been calculated and put together. This isn't, like I said, wolf whistling. This isn't uh, virtue signaling. This isn't all women's shortlists. This is talking about crimes that, yes, are already crimes. It's not creating new crimes but what it's saying is these crimes relate specifically to women so we can look at that and find ways to move forward progressively no it's not it's it's exactly about committing and creating new crimes it's about making something a hate crime so that if you raped a woman you would not only be charged with rape you'd be charged with some kind of hate crime in addition i don't see the point you know, charge them with rape, send them to jail, lock them up. I wouldn't let them out, quite frankly. You won't have any argument from me. But the bottom line for me is you don't need to then second layer it with another load of admin. But the problem is people don't get charged with rape. 97% of reports... Well, this isn't going to make any difference. Well, this, well, how would this make any difference? But it would still be about the evidence and it would still be about what one person said and what another person said. 
No, what, what I'm trying to explain is it does make a difference because what it enables us to do is look at the landscape of crime as a whole and looking at the landscape of crime is that crime which is deliberately targeted and perpetrated against women and being able to do that to then protect women. And I don't think any men should have a problem with this. Well, I have no, because if you can't, no, because if you can't prove the crime, Alex, it doesn't matter whether it's a hate crime or not. If it's not provable as a crime, you can't suddenly make it a crime just because it involves supposedly hate. But I don't I don't believe that that is what this is trying to do. I don't believe this is trying to create new crimes. I think this is about recategorization of extant crimes and crimes that are already crimes under UK law and should be treated as such. And I think that it's about time that we started to get serious about this. And like I said, I'm amazed that it's the 21st century and we haven't started looking at this before. Well, I'm amazed as well, but it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Great to talk to you, Alex. Thank you very much indeed. Very invigorating discussion. That I like it when people disagree with me. In fact, I like it a lot. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. It is Tuesday, so let us say a very good morning to Neil Oliver, our regular correspondent up in Stirling, Scotland, uh, where life um, has probably taken a bit of a turn for the worse since we last spoke. Neil, very good morning to you. I'm sure it's Wednesday, Mike, or maybe not. Maybe that's been changed. Oh, you're absolutely right. I'm so I'm so discombobulated by everything. I don't even know what day it is. I mean, you know, you know what it is. It's partly because every day seems to be the same now. One just runs into another. Yes. Yes. No. I, I, I um. I heard you mentioning the, all the all the new stuff about the the lockdown. I, I, I like a lot of people. I'm not even fully keeping up with it anymore. Yeah. Uh, I believe you know. I've already heard some people say that in Scotland, you know, there's there's some differences with what was announced in uh, down south. Yeah. Um, I don't really. I'm not really across what the differences are. I, I think what what troubles me more and more is um. I, I wrote something. I wrote something at the weekend and I pointed out that when, when I go into shops and whatever, I wear a mask. And I, when I, you know, when I went to the GP surgery with one of my kids, so I wore a mask. Yeah. And I, I, follow the, I follow the regulations as I understand them. But it's not enough to, to follow what we're being told. There's this element of belief has, mm. has come into it as well, where it almost feels that you have to declare that you believe that the official line is absolutely correct and beyond any kind of questioning or criticism yeah becoming an article of faith it's not enough just to quietly go about your business and obey the rules as you as you understand them if you if you at the same time are, are maintaining a degree of of, uh, of of skepticism and uncertainty about exactly what's going on right that makes you a bad person and i don't uh, that has got to be a, a, a wrong step for society. Oh, I think it's a very troubling one because you're right. People look at you as if you're some kind of granny killer, um, you know, some uncaring individual, somebody who's selfish, who doesn't want to help the general good. And it is. I mean, you made the point that it's a bit like communism. Um, and I'd like to expound upon that a little bit because I think you're right. There is something very kind of state run about it all. Yes, um, I think I was making I was making the point or trying to make the point that you can there are systems that you can put in place and they will sustain for as long as uh, you force them into place. Uh, if they become uh, enforced by by law, by fear, uh, and whatever else, then you can maintain systems. But eventually, that becomes too exhausting mm. for everyone. Which was, you know, which was demonstrably the case behind the behind the Iron Curtain with the old communist Soviet bloc. It eventually just exhausted itself, and and human nature, unpredictable, uh, um, willful human nature, had just taken an, an an enervating toll upon the diktats of the of the authority, and it had just it had just begun to leak like a sieve. Uh, and I think it's, with the best will in the world, you, ca- you can't impose systems that need to be permanently enforced by law or at the point of a gun or, or, or through instilling, pe- instilling fear in people. Those things which, which last longest are, are things that people can naturally buy into and support because they're, they, they take account of the variability of human nature. And I think once you drift into this territory where things have to be enforced then a clock starts ticking and it won't last forever mm. because eventually people will just 
enough people will just push back against it. And it's not because they're bad people and it's not because they don't care. It's just some people are, are able to be told what to do and other people you know, have their own ideas and don't see why their own ideas aren't just as valid. And those alternative ideas will reassert themselves. And, and as I say, it's this idea that even though I'm, I'm obeying the rules, I'm doing everything as, as far as I can. I mean, I'm sure I'm making the odd mistake here and there because there's a lot of rules out there. But as far as possible, I'm doing what I'm being told to do, but that's not enough because I maintain a degree of questioning. Mm. Is this right? Is this actually based on scientific consensus or not? Just harboring those doubts is enough to see me you know, criticised as a bad, willful person who, who doesn't care about society. And it's because I do care about society that I maintain the right to ask questions and to have, and to have certain questions answered. Mm. Yes, and I think the trouble is as well, Neil, that because we have all been relatively compliant without necessarily agreeing with it all, you know, we now find ourselves in a position where we're kind of almost saying, well, hang on a minute, enough is enough now. You're now telling us that, you know, um, we can't buy any alcohol after 10 o'clock at night as if we were some sort of, you know, idiotic alcoholics that we're just going to buy a load of vodka and drink ourselves to death between 10 and midnight. But it's all right if you buy it at quarter to 10. You know, that doesn't make any sense to most normal people. And similarly, this idea that they're going to just casually announce that the army might be drafted in to do something. And you kind of suddenly go, wait a second, where, 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 where do we get to this point? All, I just find that I can't see a, a joined up logic to it. And I'm, I'm open to the fact that that's through my own maybe inability to, to understand certain things. I'm not, you know, I, I, don't, I don't claim to be, you know, infallible in any sense. But, you know, the idea that, um, that you can have a pub open till 10 o'clock and mm. people in there are somehow okay, that that's, that's safe in inverted commas. But were they to stay in there until ten fifteen, that would have become unsafe. Yeah, as though the as though the virus is time sensitive, you know. And, and the idea that you can you know that you can meet your your mother, your elderly mother, in the pub, and that's safe in inverted commas. Mm. If you now if you go to her house and sit with her, that's unsafe. Mm. There are just elements of it that I, I think for a lot of reasonable people asking reasonable questions. It doesn't all join up into one sensible whole, and there's there's also a, a creeping inevitability about if 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 being apart from one another and not sharing each other's exhaled air is the only solution, then there's an inevitability about a very draconian lockdown mm. having to come. If it's the case that we have to stay apart from one another, meters apart, separated into our households then this piecemeal thing about wear a mask here, don't wear a mask there, gathering groups of 30 at a, a funeral, but only 15 at a wedding, you, you just begin to sense that eventually they'll say, oh, do you know what, we're just going to have to completely lock it down mm. indefinitely until the virus goes away. And I don't think many people believe at all that the virus is going to go away. No, so it really is And I wonder as well, Neil, whether they're doing it kind of piecemeal to see how much resistance there really is out there. Because I think we could both agree, probably, this is a government that quite likes to be popular, uh, even though you would wonder if that's really their aim with some of the stuff they come out with. But they would like to think that they have the backing of the people. I found it rather weird and slightly suspicious that YouGov put a poll out today saying that 77% of people actually agree with these um, new restrictions. I don't know anyone that thinks they're a good idea. No, and I think I'm aware that it's now whatever six or seven months since this whole uh, situation arose, and I, I'm aware of not really hearing from what I assume must be a large body of people who are very troubled uh, and unhappy and in dire financial circumstances on account of things that are, you know, inevitable consequences of what's going on. You know, there must, be, there must be many, many people who are being pushed to the end of their savings, their livelihoods have fallen apart, uh, they're shortly not going to be able to pay bills, to meet the rent, to meet the mortgage. Uh, you know, the long-term future for their, for their children will be preying on many people's minds. And those concerns don't, as far as I am aware, they don't seem to be being aired anywhere. And yet when I talk, as I'm sure you do, privately to people, 
there's a great deal of worry and fear about the future. Mm. And that that is going to take a toll. And COVID is not the only thing that people have to fight. A lot of people out there are involved in a day-to-day struggle for survival anyway. You know, they're only, a, you know, they're only one paycheck away from financial ruin. Yeah. You know, their businesses hanging on by the, by the fingertips and all the rest of it. And yes, COVID is there and might always be there, but it will get to a point for a lot of people where they have nothing left to lose. You, you know, if they're, if they're going to be bankrupt or unemployed or poverty stricken, or if their emotions are, are collapsing under, a, you know, under the weight of stress and, and depression, then obeying yet more rules about avoiding the virus, it, people will, will just have no alternative but to break the rules mm. because they don't have anything left to lose right. anyway. Well, exactly. Well, I'm definitely, I'm definitely hearing more people. But I mean, I know personally, personal friends of mine who have got successful businesses, but who have been unable to run those businesses for the best part of the last sort of six months or so, and they're now looking at another six months. You're talking about a, you know, very few people can go for a year without making any money at all. No, and I don't think what what is the is it going to be? I saw I saw a headline somewhere about is it Leeds that's that's calling for or other people in Leeds calling for the universal basic income to be tried? Yeah, you know, it's, I think it's the largest city so far to, to to voice an intention to to trial that as a way of life. Mm. For many people, the financial realities of life are going to become more pressing than the threat of a virus, and it's not because people dismiss that it's under certain circumstances a very dangerous disease and a very dangerous illness people get that mm. but if, if people if dawns on enough people that this is forever and they know what are we going to get hand are we all going to get is the, is the furlough scheme going to be maintained indefinitely right. or is it going to be universal basic income how are people going to get the money to survive because covid is not the only threat to no. life also, think, think for example, about some restaurants for, in London. I don't know what it's like in, in Glasgow and Edinburgh. I suspect it's the same uh, in Stirling as well. You know, if you have been able to open your restaurant uh, and you've just about been able to kind of hang on with the business that you've been doing in the last two or three months, then this latest 10 p.m. curfew is going gonna, is gonna to kill that. Um, if you haven't been able to open your restaurant, which I know a lot of people haven't because they just haven't had enough tourism business to do so, then mm-hmm. you're looking at probably having to change your career. It's not simply about, oh, I can't open up the business again. You're going to have to find a new way of actually making a living. But, uh-huh. This is, it's, the, it's, the, it's the way in which everyone is supposed to stop everything, everything else on hold until some unspoken, uncertain point in the future because of, because of the virus. And the virus, it's unidimensional. It's only one dimension to people's lives. I'm speaking to far too many people who are terrified about the future yeah. in all sorts of ways. And, and it's obviously, I mean, for, for, for high profile journalists and for, and for the MPs that are, that are taking the decisions and, and speaking about the necessity to do the things that they're doing, you know, in some respects, they're, they're having a, a quite a dynamic COVID. They're busy. You know, and they're, they're, they're still being paid, you mm. know, broadcast journalists. Pe- people are still in those industries. Their, their lives are still moving forward. Mm. They're, they're busy with the story of a lifetime. MPs and, and other civil servants and people who are making the decisions or, or acting upon the decisions that are being taken, you know, it can all feel quite, I suppose, for them, they're, they're having quite a dynamic war against COVID. But for other people who have been cast into limbo, financial economic limbo not you know unable to get on with their businesses unable to get on with their lives looking further ahead worrying about their children education university you know what kind of careers will those people have as they graduate those people are not so there's a large body of people out there who are having a bad war yeah oh for sure from them yeah, and, and, and an awful lot of those people are the ones that the kind of the, the people you've just described don't care anything about because you don't have to care about them. You can pretend that you care about the common good. But these are the same people who say, oh, well, you know, forget about the cities. Don't worry about them because in the end, everything will have to change. You know, the buildings will have to all uh, be emptied and given to people for, uh, you know, affordable housing. Quite how that works, I have no idea. But the ordinary people who actually physically have to work in the city, the cleaners of offices, the people who 
who work in the pub businesses, the people who work in restaurants, the people who work uh, in manual jobs, driving taxis, driving vans, you know, the ordinary people of this country who we serve, I think, very much uh, as a speciality at Talk Radio, you know, nobody gives um, a monkeys about them. No, and people, people are too, there's too much uh, damaging fear out there that is being uh, dismissed and part of it, I think what we were discussing right at the beginning of our, our conversation, this necessity not just to follow the, the letter of the law and to do what we're being told, but as often as possible to speak up and say our leaders are doing a great job, all of the decisions being taken are the right ones, uh, the, the, the decisions being based upon science are, are the right decisions based on the right science, and that people are being uh, prevented from uh, voicing fear is wrong. That's that must be and and is taking a toll on people. And to and to be uh, 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 to be developing a situation where again we've talked about it before, where people are frightened mm. into silence. Talk, I mean, talk of putting the army on the street. Now, however that manifests itself, and I'm sure it will just be the case in reality that, that troops will be used to free up some of the police from other duties so that they're available to be. You know, out on the street doing the things that police do. I mean, I'm sure. Well, except sure except that, be- rather ironically, Neil, what they are suggesting that the police are then doing is not what the police usually do, uh, but it's standing about oh. making sure people are wearing masks. Yeah, and this this is this is fear for people, and I and, I, and to be uh, taking a stance, uh, the the message that's coming out that if you if you say that you're frightened, and a, a lot of people's reactions to what's going on, non-compliance, if you like, it's fear manifesting itself in real life. Yeah. You know, people breaking rules, going to see parents or, or gathering together in the wrong kind of groups, in the wrong kind of places. You know, p- people are doing that because they're, they're, so, uh, they're so worried about what's going on that they're having no alternative but to seek comfort in each other. And that's involving people in, in breaking rules. P- people are being, are being frightened into compliance and frightened into saying that all of the actions that are being taken are the right ones, even when they have their doubts. You can't have, there's no, there's no free society if people can't voice doubts without being shouted down as those who have no care for society and are, and are willing to risk the lives of others. You can't jump straight from hearing someone say, how am I expected to cope with this? to just dismissing that person as a, an uncaring COVID-idiot. Mm. It's not right. And there must surely be a toll that's being totted up, it, it, that's hidden at the moment. We're not seeing it, and there must be consequences. Yes. And those consequences are going to be desperate and not pretty to watch. But this is the point about the way the government's operating now, and I, and I mean by that both the Scottish government and the British government, where they are following, in their words, the science. But the science is one sort of set of data which they are looking at, modelling into something uh, that they think it means, and then acting upon it, where in fact there are other people uh, in the scientific community who say that how about you take into account not just the COVID situation, but the health of the nation, which you've been describing and talking about. That letter, you know, there was a letter yes. I, I've seen it referenced on on social media. Yeah, uh, it, it was obviously countersigned by. I don't know, it looked like about twenty. That's right. Yeah, Hugh Pennington. Hugh, Hugh Pennington's of people, one of them. Of people with you know with with all of the same qualifications about epidemiology and virology and you know, serious credible scientists, yeah. published, well respected, peer reviewed people, uh, you know, and they were saying it's this idea about the science all the time as though the science is, is, a, is a fixed entity. Science is a constantly evolving process of, yeah. of, of clever people taking, making painstaking research uh, and, and trying their best to, 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 you know, to draw conclusions from the research that they're doing. But mm. at no point does it arrive at, at, at a full stop where you say, that's it. These are the answers. This is the path that's mm. to be taken. And I'm not seeing much coverage in the mainstream about this, this letter. Right far less it's, it's signatories. And I'm sure in the scientific community that many of them or all of them are every bit as credible as the, as the experts whose advice is being listened to and yeah. acted upon as though it's gospel. Oh, absolutely right. And, and there is no doubt um, that there are alternative viewpoints. But the worry that a lot of people have now got is that this is a government um, which is kind of operating 
with one eye uh, on the future inquiry into what they did. And they're basically ruling almost in a sort of back to the future style um, in case people look back and say, well, you should have done something better. And yeah, and we're uh, and, and to get to uh, away from matters scientific to matters practical, how are people supposed to live? You know, if we can see this drift towards a second lockdown, I mean, to me, it just seems it just seems inevitable uh, that that we'll have to go back to where we were back in March mm. and whatever. And what will that do to people? Who's as we've discussed? Who's whose economic situation is already parlous. People whose businesses have gone to the wall, who've used up all their savings, who've lost their jobs. I don't, as a reasonable member of the community, understand where the money's supposed to come from. No. Are they just are they just going to borrow another trillion and and dish it out? Well, your guess is good as mine, Neil. I mean, that's the trouble. And, and the more you think about it, the more ridiculous it seems. But yet... You know, I feel, uh, thankfully, there are people like you that I talk to and sensible people that listen to this show who call in. But sometimes you feel as if you're the only sane man in the room and everybody else has gone nuts. You do. I'll go on from, I'll go on from this. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll emerge from this, you know, this bubble. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll be shouted down, m- metaphorically speaking. Mm. Yeah, all I'm doing is, is voicing uncertainty. And, and to me, the responsibility of reasonable people is on the one hand to you know listen to what is the the, the dominant thinking and to abide by the by, abide by the rules, but also to keep an open mind to the possibility that there's another way of dealing with things. Yeah, that's only a mature and reasonable position to take. And this this sense that the government and the authorities at the moment seem to feel as if they've got themselves so far down one road that they cannot but continue as though they've been right all along, mm. when nobody would think less of them. We know that COVID appeared out of a clear blue sky. We still don't understand what it is. And if, if, pe- if people stand up and honestly say, certain measures that we took, that was that was right. We could, we could have handled that better. And now we're going to change direction and do things differently. I think the, the, the mass of the population would just breathe out a massive sigh of relief and say, yes, Good, good, right? Let's let's see what you know. Let's try something else. Yeah, well, exactly. That, that would appear to be nothing, nothing more or less than a sign of weakness, and to admit some kind of unforgivable error, and it's not the case. It really isn't, Neil. We're out of time, sadly, but another fascinating conversation. Thank you for that, and best wishes to all of you guys up there north of the border. Neil Oliver um, talking there a great deal of common sense because in the end, right here we are at the same juncture uh, that we were at sometime before this. And what seems to be very clear is that whatever the government tries to do, it does not stop the spread of coronavirus. It's that simple, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.